verses 15 through 23, it says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Bing, I'm going to pray for you. <clears throat> God, I thank you so much this morning for my brother Benga. Um, I have joy in the ministry that he does in and through you. Um, God, I pray for him this morning as he is bringing us your word. God, would you... Um, give him words that are clear. God, we know that uh, your spirit works through uh, the preparation of your people, and so I thank you for all the time and the energy and the effort that he has already uh, put into studying your word. Um, God, I pray that our congregation this morning, that we would have open ears and hearts, that your words would sink deep into our souls and transform us from the inside out. Um, God, we thank you. We love you. Um, It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hello. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Well, I'm excited to be here, and I'm thankful for an opportunity to stand before all of you um, as your brother, as a fellow Christian who has benefited from the work of Jesus, as all of you have. And I stand here today to... um, bring a message from him to you, to make much of him, hoping that that would result in you loving and praising and enjoying Jesus more deeply. That's my hope today. That's our hope every Sunday morning when we gather, is that we would know and experience Christ, what he has done for us on the cross, um, more deeply so that it would shape us and change us and make us more and more like him. And as that is working in us, it leads us to um, joy and excitement, and we start sharing that with other people. We can't contain it, because we deeply, deeply know our God. I want to begin our time today with a question. Do you feel, honestly, Do you feel like your heart is deeply captivated by Jesus? When you wake up each day, do you find yourself just overflowing with joy and awe at what Jesus has done for you? Are you in awe with who Christ is? If you're struggling to answer yes to any of those questions, You're not alone. 
The reality is that Jesus, as he is, and in what he has done, there is a profound measure of grace and glory and beauty that is so captivating, right? It is so captivating and so full of glory that when we get to heaven, all we're going to do is marvel for days and days and days and days and days and days days without end at the glory of Christ and at the glory of what he has done. And yet somehow Christ is full of glory and full of of awe and majesty and the gospel is full of beauty and loveliness and grace. And yet our daily experience is so far from that. We don't really marvel at the gospel. The message of the gospel and who God is does not resonate deeply with us as it should, right? It's easy, of course, to intellectually acknowledge the glory of Jesus, right? Like we, we, we say, wow, yeah, that's true, Benga. Like we will sing forever and ever in heaven. Um, but experientially, I don't know what that is and what that is like. It feels so elusive to us. And what we need church, is for the truth of who Christ is, the truth of the gospel, and the reality of who God is to deeply penetrate our hearts and our minds. We need these truths to be revealed to us, not just intellectually, but at the very core of our being, at the very center of who we are. We need God to do a work to really show us Christ as beautiful and lovely, And that is what would lead to us marveling and and exalting Christ and and lifting him up and just praising him and rejoicing in him. We need to know God better. We need to know God better. And it is here in this deeper pursuit of knowing and experiencing God that I believe both you and I as, as children of God will find great encouragement and insight from the truths that we see in our passage today. As I think about this, um, pursuing God and knowing God better and and growing in a deeper knowledge of who he is and what he has done, I'm reminded of a quote um, from, uh, most of you probably remember Billy Glosson, he preached here a while ago. He quoted this in a sermon Um, several years ago, and it just stuck with me, and I shared it on Facebook, and every year it pops up, and I share it again, and I share it again, and I share it again, because it is so good. It's quite lengthy, but please bear with me. This is what Charles Spurgeon has to say on the pursuit of knowing God. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified, and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And whilst humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound, in musing on the Father, there is a balm, there is a quietus for every grief. 
and in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balm for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself into Godhead's deepest sea, be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. In our passage today, Paul begins his prayer by offering thanksgiving because he had heard of the faith and love that existed among the believers in Ephesus. He was overjoyed, full of joy that the gospel was taking root in their hearts. And he could see it. He, he heard news about it, that within the church community at Ephesus, where he had labored for many years, um, God's grace was at work, that the gospel had transformed them, and they had faith in the Lord Jesus, and they were loving each other, right? So he says, I thank God for you. I do not cease in giving thanks for you. And then he moves on to begin making requests to the Lord for them. And what he asks for is this, that God might give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they may know what is the hope of his calling and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That's a mouthful. The, the passage is two really long run-on sentences. Verses 3 to 14 is just Paul just going at it. And then 15 to 33 is just, again, one really long run-on sentence. So you can imagine how challenging it was to try to understand what is going on in the mind of Paul. Paul begins with the phrase, for this reason... And here he's referring back to that song of praise, the, the run-on sentence I just talked about, in verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1. In those verses, what Paul is doing is he is praising God for the blessings of the gospel. He praises God for choosing them before the foundation of the world. He praises God for redeeming and forgiving them of their sin and trespasses. He praises God for predestining them for adoption into his family, welcoming them as his own children. And he praises God that God has given them the Holy Spirit as a seal and a guarantee of their salvation. These verses, what they do is they highlight the believer's new identity in Christ. Their identity is this, that they are chosen redeemed, adopted, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you're sitting in this room today, the same is true of you. That is your identity in Christ. Brother and sister, you are chosen, redeemed, and adopted, and filled with the Holy Spirit. I hope that brings you joy and celebration. I hope I can stop here and you go on for the rest of your day just marveling I'm chosen by God. I'm adopted. I'm a child of God. Christ died for me, and he has redeemed me and saved me from my sin. I'm not going to fall asleep tonight. 
I'm full of joy and gratitude and thanksgiving because of what Christ has done for me in saving me, redeeming me, and adopting me. Of course, this identity is not of their own doing, but it is granted to them because they have union with Christ by faith. They have been united to Jesus. That is what happens to every one of us when we come to salvation. The Spirit does his work in the background, behind the curtains, and he unites us. He's the word mystically. He unites us to Jesus. And then all that belongs to Jesus now starts being communicated to us through the Holy Spirit in our union with him. Paul also acknowledges the tangible effects of grace in their lives, their faith in the Lord Jesus as it leads them to loving one another. It is with these profound realities in mind that Paul, with deep gratitude, begins praying. That's what prompts him to prayer. And as we look at Paul's prayer today, this afternoon, um, as we look at Paul's prayer today, the first thing I want us to see this morning is that we individually and collectively can know and experience God through the work of the Holy Spirit. I did miss, <laughs> mix up my notes, so I'm trying to figure out where I'm at. I skipped the whole page, but that's okay. It's okay. <clears throat> so, first point. We individually and collectively can know and experience God solely through the Holy Spirit. Let's look at our passage beginning in verse 17, Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, may give his readers and all Christians through all the ages who read this prayer, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that there be light, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So what we learn here is that Paul understood something very fundamental about what it means to grow in a real and intimate knowledge of God which is that in order, in order for anybody to attain an intimate knowledge of God, it is essential, it is crucial, it is necessary that it is God himself who initiates that revelation. This understanding is what shapes Paul's first request for the believers in Ephesus. He prays that the Holy Spirit who indwelled them so he's not praying that they get the Holy Spirit. He understands that they already have the Holy Spirit. He covers that earlier in the chapter. He knows they're converted. He knows they're Christians. So he's praying that the Holy Spirit who is already in them would grant them wisdom and would grant them revelation to deepen their knowledge of God. That he would enlighten the eyes of their hearts so that they would know God better. When Paul speaks of knowledge here, just to clarify it, 
He isn't speaking of, he's speaking of knowing God in an intimate and close relationship. This knowledge surpasses mere intellectual understanding. Yet there is a common tendency, right, that we fall into to want to reduce what is meant to be intimate and sweet and a source of joy to just mere acquisition of knowledge. We want to pursue knowing God void of the Holy Spirit. Like, really? How? Right? Like, Paul says, like, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Like, how, how can we expect that we would grow in the knowledge of God by setting aside the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts? This approach, of course, is problematic because, as we see in Scripture, it's actually possible that you and I can possess great, accurate, and precise knowledge of who God is and yet fail to see him as glorious and as beautiful, right? Sadly, it is possible to hold to the correct doctrinal beliefs and still remain indifferent or even hostile to Christ and the gospel. As James 2.19 points out, even demons possess correct theology, probably better theology than many of us. But this does not lead them to worship. It does not lead them to praise. It does not lead them to adoration. What you and I need to recognize is that like, we need the Holy Spirit. We need him to work. We need him to reveal to us who God is on the heart level, inside. It's impossible to know God without the working of the Spirit. It's impossible. The good news is that God actually desires for us to know him. He wants you and I to actually know him. He's not like, oh, stay in your lane. I'm going to do my thing over here. I'm going to make it super hard for you to know me. You're going to have to read all these books and uh, meditate for 30 days without eating food and drinking water, and then you'll be enlightened. Boom. No. God actually desires for you and I to know him. And that's why he gave us the Holy Spirit. That's one of the many roles that the Holy Spirit plays in the life of a believer. He guides us into all the truth. That's what Jesus says in John 16. Right? He says, hey, I'm heading out. It's actually better that the Spirit comes than for me to stay here. And what he's going to do is he's going to guide you into all the truth. All of you, right? If Jesus remained, he would have to be like bodily present in one place because he is God and man, so physical. But through the working of the Spirit, all of you can have Christ seated on the throne of our hearts, instructing us and guiding us into all of the truth. Yet often we find ourselves minimizing the role and the significance of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the life of the church. There are many times that I myself, um, a good Christian, pick up my Bible, head to a coffee shop, wherever, and I sit down, and I start reading, I start praying, I'm doing all the things. The environment is right, I have lo-fi music, or, uh, you know, 
Ten hours of soaking in his presence, if you, if you guys know what that is. <laughs> so the vibes are right. Sorry to use that word. And yet, nothing's happening here. Why? Why? So often God is so gracious to me in those moments. I'm sitting there, I'm getting frustrated. I'm doing all the right things. God, why aren't you here? Why, why don't I feel anything? Why, why am I not rejoicing? Then he speaks through his word. He says, well, you're not trusting in the spirit. You're not coming to me through the spirit, through the means that I have provided for myself to be revealed to you. Then I'm like, oh, Thank you. That in itself is, is God communicating to me. It's cause for praise and rejoicing. Like that, that in itself is the experience of God, the conviction of God. And God turns things around. He does. So I, I thought of a few questions um, that I would ask to try to help us think um, about how we understand the Spirit's work to reveal God to us and how we examine our relationship to the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, if I haven't said this, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. He's not a force. People say that a lot, and it sounds like it's, it's repeated, but it's true. Many people, when they try to think of the Spirit, they think of him as, as a force, as, as a non-person, and really, he is God, and he's worthy of your worship and praise. And what he does, actually, in our lives is he makes much of Christ. That is his ministry to us in our hearts. So don't downplay, don't minimize the role of the Spirit in your life. So questions. Are you convinced? Are you convinced that knowing God intimately is only possible through the Holy Spirit? Are you sure? Coffee shop Benga wasn't sure. He didn't believe that. So ask yourself that question. Are you convinced that no, there is someone outside, really inside of me that I need to depend on if I want to know and experience God deeply? Second is, do you truly depend on the Holy Spirit? Do you? Are you walking in step with the Spirit? Those are real questions that I think all of us should take seriously and, and examine. Because I think it's easy to just be like, oh, there's all these weird people who overemphasize the Holy Spirit, and I don't want to be uh, you know, associated with that, so I'm not going to talk about the Holy Spirit. It's like, no. It's like, there's all these false religions that talk about Jesus as, you know, the brother of Archangel Michael, whatever uh, the her heretics believe. We don't say, I'm not going to talk about Jesus because there's a bunch of uh, people who falsely proclaim him, so why do we do that with the Holy Spirit? We can't. We shouldn't. We should repent, actually, of that. He's God. So let's move to our next point in this prayer of Paul, which is to know the breath of God's plan. Let's go back to 
verse 18, Ephesians 1, 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which God has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul here is praying that the believers that are listening would would grasp and comprehend particular blessings that we have in the gospel. The first thing we see is the hope of God's calling. And the second thing is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul wants them to more deeply grasp the hope to which they've been called in the gospel. God, from all the way in eternity past, has called us to salvation. And we respond in the here and now by faith and belief in what he has done. And that results in our salvation and our union with Christ, like I mentioned earlier. Many of you are probably familiar with the story of Lazarus dying in the grave, uh, dying, and then the Lord Jesus going to his gravesite and calling him out of the tomb, right? And he wakes up from the dead. That's what, what's in view here when Paul talks about God's calling. When God called you, Kevin, probably in like 1915 when you were... <laughs> Sorry. But, but God has called all of us. If you are saved, God has said, Jeff, come out of that tomb. And you came and your, your chains fell off and, and, and your tomb was full of light and Christ looked upon you with love and called you to himself and saved you from your sin. And that has happened to all of us. So he has saved us in his calling and his calling points us to a hope, right? This hope is something that is sure, it's guaranteed It is certain. It is a promise that he himself has made to us, right? That one day we ourselves would actually be resurrected with incorruptible bodies. That one day Jesus is going to come and gently wipe away every tear and right every wrong that has been done to you, every wrong that has been done in the world. He will reverse and undo. This is the hope of every Christian, And this is beautiful and marvelous and glorious. And there's no one else that can offer that to you. No one else. Nothing else except the gospel of Christ. The glorious gospel of Christ is the only source of this sure and certain hope. And that is what Paul wants his readers to really really grasp and see, wow, we were dead in our sins and our trespasses and living and hanging out in Ephesus and now Christ has saved us and he has called us to this hope that is marvelous and glorious and beautiful. I love him. Praise his name. He's wonderful. He's so good to me. That's what Paul really wants them to see. So we see that our hope points to a future that is promised and sure 
And it's strongly connected to the next thing that Paul prays for, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. So interestingly, I think if you read this, um, and different commentators kind of go one way or another on this, but I think a faithful understanding of this is really understanding that we are God's inheritance, right? Because Paul speaks of our inheritance in God earlier in the chapter. But when he says the riches, that we would know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, he is trying to get us to see that we ourselves are God's inheritance. Paul wants them to see the immense worth and value that God has placed on them. The immense worth and value that God has placed on you. Like you are his inheritance. God actually cares and loves you. You belong to him. You were bought by him. And you are his inheritance. And Paul just really wants them to rejoice when they hear that, when they see that, when the Spirit actually starts revealing that to them in their hearts. He wants them to marvel that, really, me? I'm God's inheritance? Me? The struggling grad student from Nigeria? Really, me? I'm God's inheritance? I'm his prized possession? I'm his treasure? Me? Wow. Another reason why I'm not going to bed tonight. That is what Paul wants them to see and, and, and rejoice in and marvel in, right? And the beauty of this, the idea of, of God's calling and God's hope is that it, it spans, right? I, I, I named this point the breadth of God's plan. Because what you see is the calling starts from eternity past and God's taking possession of us finally in the future is going to be in eternity on, on this side, right? So God is just like working like from start to finish and Paul is like, behold this, look. All the way before the foundation of the world, God has called you to salvation and now you are his inheritance in the future, in eternity. Wow. Start to finish. Whole scope, right? If you do programming, you know about scoping. Anyways, that's a detour. Um, so, I want to move to our third and final point. Look with me at verses uh, 19 through 20. That is, know the greatness of God's power. Know the greatness of God's power. Verses 19 through 23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. To the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. In this last portion of Paul's prayer, Paul is going to great lengths to emphasize the greatness of God's power that is available to his readers, the greatness of God's power that is available to believers, to you and I, right? And the emphasis here is significant because of the background of many of the Christians who were at the church in Ephesus, right? Many of them were previously involved in practices like magic. Some of them were part of the Artemis cult. If you want to learn more about that, you can read um, Acts 19, the sons of Sceva, and Acts 20. All that is detailing Paul's um, missionary work and his ministry amongst them, right? And these people, right, they they were part, many of them were, were involved in magic, the Artemis cult, and astrology. And they lived under fear. They were afraid of dark spiritual forces. Growing up in Nigeria, um, many of us are Christians, um, but we're very superstitious, really superstitious, right? Um, If you guys have, I'm really tempted to just say this. Personally, I'm not very superstitious. I'm just a little stitious. So I resonate with this, right? That, man, everyone is like, oh, don't, you know, in Nigeria, you can't, like, put your hand, like, over the door um, because that's, like, blocking angels from coming into your house and maybe letting demons in and stuff like that. It's like, really? Where do you you see that? You're a Christian. You shouldn't believe that. And I think they probably share the same sort of mindset. And Paul, what he's doing here is he's trying to give them a very powerful assurance of the power of God that is a power that surpasses all demonic powers and all powers of this earth, right? Jesus is ruling and reigning as the God-man, and he sits enthroned high above all powers and all authorities. And this assurance of the power of God is not just a theological concept that is abstract, that they don't know about. It's something that they've already experienced. It's a lived reality for them. Why? Because they're saved. They're believers. Um, A lot of times people talk about miracles and whatnot and uh, things of that sort. And I think we're always caught up in um, someone walking on water or doing something like that. Or, you know, you have a jacket, you slap someone with it, and suddenly they're free of, of whatever calamity was worrying them. But the greatest miracle, I think, is the miracle of salvation. God took a rotten corpse... Bones, dead, at the bottom of the ocean. And Christ, he dove in and picked up those bones and breathed life into them. And now you who were once dead are made alive in Christ. 
that's a miracle, right? Like I was once dead in my sins and trespasses, but now I stand before you by the power of God as a man alive in Christ. That's a miracle. I'm, I'm a walking miracle, guys. I don't know about you. I hope you, you feel the same way about what Christ has done. Christ has raised you who are dead in your trespasses and sins to life. If you're a Christian, you are a walking miracle. So when you meet somebody who's like, yo, I know about this Christianity. I don't believe in all the supernatural stuff. Like, show me some proof. I'm like, right here, right here. There's so much here in this last portion, um, but really, um, I think what I really want us to see and get out of this is that there is power. There is power in the gospel, and there is power at work in you if you are a believer. There is power at work in the church. Christ is the head of the church, and his power is at work in the church, right? So when you feel overwhelmed by your life circumstances, when you face temptation, when you face trials, what this passage is offering you is to look back and say, is the tomb empty? Was Christ raised from the dead? How much power did God exert in raising him from the dead? And you look at that and you think about that and you marvel at that. And then you read this and you say, that same power is at work in me right now. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Church, I praise God for what he has done in Christ and the beauty and the, just the glory that is contained in the gospel, the glory that is contained in God's salvation, the glory that is contained in just who God is in his beauty. Right? You think of, of Moses. You know, He's like, I want to see you. I want to see you. And God's like, all right, I'm going to carve out this rock for you and I'm going to pass by and you see the back of me, and he beheld God in his beauty and majesty and glory. Same with Isaiah. He got a glimpse. Woe is me. God is beautiful and glorious and and majestic. And I really hope that we can see that through the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, you are great and glorious and majestic. We praise you, God, for your work in the gospel. You work through your son, Jesus, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And the fact that even now he rules and reigns. And he's a good king. He's a kind king. He's the God-man. And his heart towards us has not changed. The same Jesus who, when he thought about the fact that he was about to be exalted and raised up, 
he grabbed a rag and, and washed the feet of his disciples and he served and he loved them to the end. That same Jesus is the king who rules and reigns over us. He is the head over the church. We praise you for that. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be gripped deeply by your gospel, gripped by who you are and what you have done. Let us not go a day without marveling at Christ, without marveling at the beauty in the gospel. Lord, forgive us for how much we take for granted and what you have done for us. Have mercy on us, God. Show us more of yourself, would you, Lord? Help us to see you. And as we see you, I pray that we would be transformed as you have promised. And as we are being transformed, as we are rejoicing in you and in who you are, I pray that we would not shut up about it, that we would take it out to the world, to the nations, to our co-workers. I praise you, God, that you are marvelous and full of glory and worthy of my praise, worthy of our praise. I thank you. Be with our church, Lord. You are with our church. You fill our church. You are the head of our church. We praise you and we worship you. Be with us as we continue our worship. May our worship be sincere and humble and honest. Bless our people, Lord, with the revelation of yourself. Give them a, a spirit of wisdom and revelation that they may intimately know you.